Okay, let's turn to 1 Timothy 5. And I want to read verses 1 to 16. And this is about relationships, as I said. Very practical. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires uh, overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is here to instruct us and train us in righteousness, to help us to live as you want us to live and to be witnesses with our words and with our lives. Please, Holy Spirit, come and apply this word to us this morning. Lord, may it come alive to us, out from its first historical setting, into our very real setting today. Lord, by your Spirit, will you feed us this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, as I, we're looking through 1 Timothy. If you're a visitor, it's not every week, uh, but we are going through it. And as I realised a week or two ago that this is where I would be speaking at the beginning of uh, February, I found actually a real quickening of faith and encouragement. Because I shared with you last night, uh, last week, I beg your pardon, last Sunday evening at the church family meeting, I feel that God has recalibrated us a bit, refocused us a bit at the beginning of this year to say, I want you to remind you that the church is people. The church is people in relationship to God and in relationship to one another. The church does have projects. It does have facilities and buildings. We are well supplied with them as it happens. But they can distract us. And last year was a busy year. We had some very uplifting and exciting times. Great breakthroughs, financial provision. We were refurbishing this building. We were out in the Guildhall for the first few months. We planted out Life Church Southampton. 
all of it good stuff we're called to do. But actually, in the pressures of all that, we can perhaps lose sight of just the core issue of people in relationship with Jesus and with each other. And so this year, we want to be a little more people-centred in how we plan and think. We want to reach out to new people. We want to communicate well and provide opportunities for fellowship and for building relationally. We want to be what we are by name, which is the family church. The family church doesn't mean it's only for family people. It's the family of God, which is actually what we're going to see this morning. It's got a family feel, if you like. So in the light of that, I found this passage particularly stirring this morning. So I trust you'll get something out of it. Because you can read it and think, well, what's that got to say to me? Only a small number of us here are widows, for example. Uh, though we need to honour them, but it isn't quite such a prevalent um, type of person as it maybe was in the first century when life was shorter and men particularly seemed to die quite young uh, and many things took away their lives, different things that we thankfully don't have to contend with. But there are a lot of principles in God's word. God's word is given to us like this. Real people, real history. The Holy Spirit inspires people like Paul to write down a revelation really of God's heart and God's ways to a situation, in this case the church in Ephesus where Timothy was ministering and leading as probably himself in an apostolic role. And then that word comes alive to us in our situation through the same Holy Spirit as we read it carefully and think about it. Now all through these these letters, the two letters to Timothy, you get a bit of a sense of the makeup of the early church. And it's actually quite instructive because you realise that they weren't perfect. They had problems, probably as many if not more problems than we have. They certainly weren't without them. They had all sorts of different types of people in the church. There were young people in the church. There were old people in the church. There were people who were married and family people. There were people who were single for a variety of reasons. There were the elders, there were the deacons, there were others. There were those who were spiritual and fired up for God. There were those who were unspiritual and quite um, fleshly, as we'd say, quite carnal. There were rich people. When we get to chapter 6, there were clearly people who had a lot of money. And there were very poor people in the church. Perhaps some of them, we've been looking at some of the issues today in that, in that, uh, that short passage. There were people who were legalistic and very heavy about what you should and shouldn't do. And there were people who were pleasure lovers, who were very licentious and said, well, it doesn't matter what you do, Jesus loves you anyway. There were false teachers, and they'd actually had some leaders in the church who went off the rails. And Paul has in the verses, after I've just finished reading, some quite clear instructions about how you handle difficulties in leadership. We're experiencing that in Shalom right now. This is reality that you get people in leadership who don't always perform as you want to, others who get uh, uh, ulterior motives to try and take over. And there was all that sort of thing going on in this situation as well. There were unruly women. There were immoral men. There were good people. There was all sorts in these churches. Now, Paul uses a term in 1 Timothy 3 and 15... And it's this term about the church. He calls it God's household. In 1 Timothy 3.15 it says, If I am delayed, you will know how how people ought to behave, conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Can I just double check? Have you not got PowerPoint? You're just trying to get it. That's fine. Don't worry. 
But it just helps me to know. Okay, this verse, 1 uh, Timothy 3 and verse 15, just to save you looking at it. If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And he calls the church, and he would call any church, including this one, a family. It's an appropriate way to describe a church. It's God's household. The church is God's household, but I think you can justifiably call a church a family. That's how the Bible seems to describe it, one of the significant pictures of church. And although social conditions and cultural conditions may have changed massively from the first century, fundamental truths and principles about how God's household behaves, how God's family behaves, are still true for us. So I want to look at relationships. I'm going to look quickly, I hope relatively quickly anyway, at church relationships and then family relationships as drawn from this passage and try to apply them to us today. So first of all, let's look at the first point, which is the family feel of church. Church relationships. If you've got your Bibles open, keep them open, because I'm only going to refer to the verses in 1 Timothy 5, 1-16. So we don't really need to put them all up on a screen, and I haven't. Just the main points. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 5. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger, women as bro- younger men I beg your pardon, as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters <clears throat> with absolute purity. The key to understanding how relationships in the church work is to think of it as what it is, a family. Family is very different from a club, any sort of club. Although club has diverse people in it, they're there for a particular reason. It might be patchwork and quilting. It might be cricket. It might be uh, fishing. It might be all sorts of things. And there will, there will be things they do together which are, uh, hold them together. They have that common interest. But the church is not a club. It's not a holy club. It's not a Jesus club. It's, not, it's a family. Because you don't get into the church by joining a church or by deciding to go and attend a particular place of worship. You are born into the church by the Holy Spirit. You cannot get into Jesus' church unless you are born again of the Holy Spirit. That is a fundamental fact. It's an absolute spiritual fact. And it means that's why the picture of family is appropriate. Because you don't choose your family. You get them. (laughs) That's true naturally. You, you, you choose your friends, you choose whether you want to go to the fishing club or whatever, but when you are born into a family, you are there because you're born in. Now, you are born again of the Holy Spirit into the family of God. You are one with everybody else who is born of the Spirit. That is a fundamental. That's how it works. You're in the family, almost, I have to say, whether you like it or not. Then, even with the local church... Ideally, and we're obviously looking for more and more people to be born again, to come into it, but ideally the majority are going to be born of the Spirit. They have the same Spirit in them you have. They are one in the Lord. They're not just people who happen to like Winchester Family Church or like John Groves. I'm sure there wouldn't be as many as this if that was all it was. Uh, they're, They're not... Don't worry, I'm not looking for false for praise. I'm just, uh, but but uh, what, what I'm trying to say is, it's not about me. It's not about what we do here. You you are looking for God to guide you, yes, 
to, to link yourself with another body of born-again, spirit-filled people who are your local family. And you recognise that the reason you meet together is because of what God's done in your heart and spirit. It's not because you all happen to be very similar to each other or have the same interests. We certainly share many things. We share the same Heavenly Father. We share the same love for Jesus. We share the same Holy Spirit. Actually, we all share the same day on which our sins were dealt with. Whatever background you've got, you and I look to the same event to deal with our sins. The cross of Jesus Christ. The day he died, the day he rose again, is what is the centre of my hope and your hope. And my sins were dealt with then, just as yours are. We are all being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're all people who the Holy Spirit is working in, but we are not yet uh, finished. It's, it's work in progress. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're actually redeemed sinners. Now, I don't think we think of that as our identity. We think of ourselves as children of God, rightly so. But actually, we are people who came with an awful lot of baggage and need when we got saved. All of us. We, got, we were saved, we were redeemed, and the Holy Spirit is changing us from one degree of glory to another. But we're all work in progress. And we're family. Now that is how the church is. So we don't have the liberty to think of it as something which is about a group of people who are just like me or who I recognise as worth being my friends or I'd like to be with. I want friendship in the church, but fundamentally the church is not based on me just enjoying the company of the people around me. It is based much deeper than that on a relationship which is real, There is a oneness in the Spirit. There is the same Lord and and Master for me as for you. The same Holy Spirit in me as in, in you. We are one Spirit in the Lord. It is a fundamental unity. And that means there is a basic respect and affection for everybody. Whatever age or background they have, whoever they are, we don't diss anybody. Because they're our family. There is an age and a respect. There's not a fundamental mockery of the young of the old, the old of the young, contempt or cynicism or whatever words which crowd in. No, no. And these opening two verses say, you treat everyone as if that was your father, the older man. That younger man like your brother. There's a sort of equality there. That younger younger woman is your sister. That older mother is your mother. There's a care There's a a regard. Now, you doesn't mean you'll do everything together or enjoy doing everything together. I am blessed to have a very good family. And actually, as it happened, we went and visited yesterday, just because of the way our diary worked. It was an opportunity for us to go just and visit our family in Hastings, where where they aren't all there, but where quite a few are. And so I've got Marion's parents, Marion's mum and dad, uh, my own mum and dad have gone to glory. I actually happened, as it happened, I went and visited their grave yesterday because I like to go a couple of times a year and put some fresh flowers on it and clean it up a bit so it doesn't look... Uh, that's out of respect for my own parents. And so, uh, uh, you know, we had Marion's parents. Then we worked round with Chloe, our daughter and son-in-law, Paul, and uh, four boys, four grandsons. Now, I love them all. I love Alan and Christine. I've got a lot of respect for them. Uh, I love little Charlie, Joshua, Ethan... And Freddie. I love Paul, who's not my son, but he's my son-in-law. He's a great young guy, and I'm so feel he's God's provision for our daughter. God's amazing grace. 
And yet I relate to them all differently. You know, I don't actually behave with Joshua the same as I behave with Alan, Marion's dad. Joshua, yesterday afternoon, I was crawling through an inflatable assault course with Joshua. Uh, there was an inflatable assault course which would have gone the width of this, if not the length of this building. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things. Like a bouncy castle, but the whole thing's an assault course. You go through, and they don't normally let adults on, but Joshua persuaded them to let me on. And I went on with him. And you go through things about that deep, but fortunately it's all squashy. And then you get through here, and it was all that. Now, I didn't do that with Alan in the morning. <laughs> but with Alan in the morning, we were talking, it was a good time. And uh, we were talking and we were expressing uh, our sympathy and, and support for each other and health matters there because he's, he's come through a difficult time with uh, uh, an illness but, but God's been good to him. And then we were talking about family matters. It was totally different. With Paul, I sat and watched the first half of the rugby and then we didn't watch the second half. That's so funny because we were, oh, it's 16-6 to England. Oh, well, we're, and we know we're playing pretty well in the first half. So Paul is more into rugby than I. I'm a bit of a soccer one myself. But I, I, Paul told me about the rules. You know, what's that mean, Paul? Why can't I do that? And so, because I, I don't know the rules. So Paul was telling me the rules. Uh, the boys were upstairs playing and watching Shrek or something. And so, so we were able to watch the rugby. And then we got called for dinner. And it was half time. I'm 16, 16. Oh, that's going to be England, all right then. <laughs> so off we went. Got all the boys in, maniac. Had dinner. Went back. 26, 19. They've lost. <laughs> so anyway, that was another story. So, Paul was very disappointed. <laughs> Paul's quite into rugby. So, you relate differently to different people. You just, do you know what I mean? We don't all have to do the same thing. Right, if you're in the Gross family, you all have to crawl through an inflatable assault course. That is how you are part of the Gross family. Whew, what's the matter with you? Why won't you do it, Alan? Just because you're 74 and had an operation. No, actually, actually, that is not... You don't think that way, but you love and you accept, you've got time. For it. Now, that is church. Now, I know everybody's family isn't the best, and I thank God for God's provision for me. And, and I do thank God for every one of them. My daughters elsewhere, uh, my son in Portsmouth, daughter in Bristol, and all the different, and they're, they're you know, dear Alex and Alice and, and, and others as well. And, and yeah, yeah, thank you, Lord. But I do realise that's God's grace. I don't act, and we've had our battles in our family life. And I don't actually, so, I, but let's get a bit bigger than that. If you've not had a happy family experience, this can be your family. It should be. And it can, what we want to do is reflect that. There's diversity. Of course there's diversity. You don't all do the same thing. Of course you don't. What Joshua and Charlie want to do and Alan are totally different. But there are times when you can be together and you love each other and you're interested in each other and if one can help the other, you do. And they do. That, that you know, if, if there's a little bit of a pressure financially, which there often is with a young couple with lots of children, some of the older ones whose children are slightly off their hands can put some finance into it. That's how it is. That's what we do in our family. Now, actually... That is only a picture of what the church can be. But it's a biblical picture. That you come, and when you, your attitude to the older women is that they're like a mother. That you're going to regard them with respect. You're going to care about them. You do care what happens to them. The younger women, with purity, and and an element of concern and protection. The younger men, with a sort of companionship, maybe a sort of uh, equality uh, between you. Not not hierarchical, a brother's thing. The older men, with always with respect. Now, actually, that still means we can be robust. 
because the context here in 1 Timothy 5 is actually certainly would appear to be with the older men a context of rebuking. There was something wrong that, 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 that Timothy needed to address. Probably it was across the board with much going on in Ephesus. But even when he's confronting a problem, he is told to treat them like a father, like a brother, like a sister, like a mother. That's right. That's how we've got to develop church, brothers and sisters. So even when we don't agree, or when we deal with something, we don't think it's just this, we, we remember this is my brother. This is my, it's like a father in God. It's like a mother in God, like a sister in God. That is how it is. It's not merely a picture. There's more to it. We are one in the spirit. Let's move on quite quickly. Church relationships are to have a caring culture. That's what I, a family feel, caring culture. When you read through these verses, it's quite obvious that Paul is concerned that they look after needy people. In this case, it's largely about widows. Now, God has revealed his own heart as being one who defends widows and fatherless. Jesus was consistently compassionate towards widows. Do you know one of the first organisational things of the New Testament church in Acts 6 was to make sure the widows got looked after properly and fed properly. There is a big issue here. God is saying, I am a God who cares for the vulnerable and needy. And my church must always have that sort of bias. Now, I don't think it's always about money. The widow's thing is a little bit, in, in, in a sense, a cultural thing. Because, as I said, there were a lot of widows. There were a lot of lonely and vulnerable people thrown up by the way life and health was in the first century. But we do still have poor and needy around us. We do still have marginalised people. We have the unemployed, the homeless, the refugees. We have people who haven't got very much or who are very vulnerable. And the church needs to be a place where they feel welcomed and at home. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be like that. We don't reflect the heart of God if we're not like that. Now, it doesn't mean we give ourselves a hard time because we live in Winchester and probably the actual need is there, but it's not as dominant as in some parts of the country. But when we actually do have marginalised people, we must be extremely careful to welcome and embrace them. We don't get so selfish and protective that we think, well, what about this and what about that? The church does have to put things in place. You do have to be careful that things... And in our modern Britain, we have more than we need, bluntly, but you have all your CRB checks and everything else. Now, now I'm sorry, I know they're important, but what I'm trying to say, we need to think about that. But we don't all need to be jumpy-jumpy. We have to actually be welcoming people. And we have to be of a heart towards the marginalised, because God is. That is simply how God is. Actually, the Bible always reflects a sort of dignity with the poor, and it comes out in this verse, actually, verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And someone has said, the Bible teaches us to treat poverty not as something contemptible, but as something deserving honour. Now we just need to do that. That is how the Bible teaches us to be. It's very easy in modern Britain to be contemptible of poverty. You might be surprised, but I think it is. Be contemptible, that's their own fault. They haven't done that or done that. That is not always true for a start. And in any case, even if it is true, we're not to be contemptible of it. So there is to be a dignity about how you treat poor and needy people. And that's here. 
However, we could say justifiably that we can broaden this out a little bit. Take the principles that are here and apply them in the spirit to our day and age. Because it is true that in modern Britain, thank God, and in modern Winchester, thank God, abject poverty isn't that common. Praise God, it isn't. I don't want people starving on the streets. I mean, there are poor people, and what I've said, we do need to be careful about. But we also have to think, what else is this talking to us about? It's talking to us about people who are vulnerable or lonely or needy in some way. It may be financial, but it may be just social, which is what was true of the widows and orphans in the first century. We have plenty of people. Actually, our culture throws up a lot of divisions in life. Dysfunctional families is one of the terms we have nowadays. There's a lot of people who are very lonely and isolated. There's a lot of people who don't have much family. Or our culture, particularly modern Britain, particularly now, rather than 25 or 30 years ago, throws up a lot of people who are lonely. A lot of people may have money, but they're lonely. They live isolated from one another. There's a lot of singleness in the broadest sense of the word. Apart from... um, perhaps the modern equivalent to the widows and orphans. The result of uh, family breakdown, the divorcee, the single parent, the children without fathers, and the host of other things that are a result in our culture of our culture's problems. I mean, we had a sexual liberation thing that I was old enough to remember, going on in the 60s and 70s. Wonderful freedom, free sex. What a cynical lie that was. Call it freedom... Call it freedom for kids not to know where their father is or who he is. Call it freedom to have a bill going through that says fathers have got to be ironed right out of the whole thing. I don't call that freedom, I call it bondage. I call it judgment, actually. I don't call it freedom. That, that, that it becomes increasingly common for a, a child to not grow up with their natural parents, for whatever reason, whether it be... The, it, but it's basically sexual morality gone potty. The promiscuity of the last 40 years has thrown up a lot of collateral damage. And we have a lot of stuff in our society which you could easily parallel to the widows and orphans of the first century. By the way, please don't misunderstand my passion about this. I'm not despising anybody. I've lived and ministered to many a a needy situation over the years. My irritation is at the philosophy and the thinking that suggests this is freedom. I hope you pick up my heart. But I actually think we have the equivalent to this all round us, including in quite comfortable Winchester. We've got people who need loving, people who are vulnerable and need supporting, who need a father figure when there isn't one, or like a brother alongside them, who need a bit of protection or security. It may be practical. They might actually need someone to come and... They haven't got a man there to do the practical thing they need in the home. There's a score of things that you could say were a modern equivalent. Need... It may not always be just cash, though it can be. Now, real Christianity has always had space for that, to welcome, because it's a family. We're here to serve each other and help each other. And in fact, the Bible is very clear. It warns us not to be self-centred, not to be me-centred, which is so common today for all of us. We've got to work out our salvation by helping other people, including those who might not be our natural Uh, avenue of help. I really feel we have to break out of our little circles and help people sometimes that aren't just our mates, because that's how it should be in the family of God. We have a warning, interesting enough, to some of the widows here. They probably weren't all poor by any means. In verse 6, 
But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy ourselves. That's probably a particular phraseology, meaning she's living possibly a sexually um, uh, promiscuous life. Basically, a sinful life. And you see, Paul is saying even this sort of person, and he he will address the rich as well in chapter 6, so it's not just to them, any sort of person can live selfishly just for their own pleasure. If we're going to be truly real, live Christians, we live to help other people and support them. The Bible is very practical, though, and down to earth. These verses I find really helpful. I honestly do. Because you can say, well, where do we stop and start then? How do we, who do we help and how do we help? Well, I believe as you read those verses, you can find a clear principle. The first responsibility of the church's charity, now we need to really hear this, the first responsibility of the church's charity is to those within its own ranks who are genuinely needy and spiritually committed. Right? I make no apology for saying that. That's where we start. We might have an overflow, but as you read through these verses, Paul would even say, you don't meet every widow's need. If she's got family who can look after her, let them do it. If she is living a worldly, non-Christian, ungodly lifestyle, you don't help her. Ooh, that might be non-politically correct today. But that is biblical thinking. At least you start, I'm not saying you don't show some love to others, but we start by looking after those within our own ranks who are genuinely needy. It may be not to do with money today always. It could to do with care. They need someone to look after them or to to bring them, give them a meal or be hospitable or friendly, they're lonely, whatever it is, and who are committed to Jesus. So, I mean, we start there. The reason I emphasise it is because I find over the years Christians are almost better at going out and, and, and working with needy people outside their own ranks. You can get a needy person saved, get them on the foundation course, into the church, and they're less cared for once they're through and off Alpha than they were when they were on Alpha. Now, actually, I want us to care for people like that, but the big thing that comes out here is our first responsibility is those who are already part of the body. So, actually, they are the top of the list. And if you've got spares for others, that's great. But that is how it works. And you read those verses, you'll see exactly that is what the Holy Spirit... God inspires Paul to teach us. So it's not John Groves. So it's a very important thing that we use discrimination in our, in our meeting of needs. There is a discrimination there. That real needs, real needs are, are ones where there is no other possible help. And those we must go for. And also those who are serving God or endeavouring to follow God as best they can. Now, that particularly was to be a focus of their help. In actual fact, that brings us to a dignity, which you pick up here, which I can't go into in great detail, but you might have been interested to notice this list thing in verse 9, which seems to be only for the older widows. What we find here is this isn't a list about mere uh, meeting needs, because uh, I'm, I'm in danger of getting too complicated here. I don't want to, but... Uh, if you look at verses 3 and um, verse 5, uh, things like that, they wanted to help the really needy widow. But then in verse 9, there is a different category which he talks about a list. 
And actually, these are older women who serve the church. That's the fact. They serve the church. I think, in some ways, the first century was ahead of us. I felt quite challenged when I was reading this and reading commentaries on it. That they actually, the godly older women were serving in the church. And they were, if you like, to some degree, paid or supported because of the ministry they were doing in the church. And so, actually, they were not just the recipients of handouts, they were serving the church. But Paul is very careful, they've got to be godly ones, who've got a good track record of being godly women. And if you've got, they are the ones you put on your official ministry team and support them. And that's really what that list's about. But the thing we can learn there is that God is telling us that needy and even lonely and vulnerable people need to play their part in the church. They're not just recipients of help, they also help others. And, and that, that is a challenge to us, to organise ourselves well, but it's also a challenge to everybody. Nobody should be thinking, well, I, I just receive friendship and help. No, no, you can give it as well. There's a two-way street. You are served and you serve. And it's lovely when you see that happening, and you do see it happening in the church. And, and it's a wonderful thing, and we need to really, really get hold of it that we try and involve people, whatever they, whoever they are, they might be an elderly widow. He's talking about people over 60, which is probably quite old by first century standards. But they were godly women and they used them to serve the church. Some commentators say they probably prepared women for baptism. They counselled the younger women. They may well have been involved in good works, charitable works, and probably were official intercessors and prayers. It's quite interesting. But they were also supported whilst they did that, because they had a part to play in church life. Now, I found all of that really interesting and challenging, but there's a thing in principle here that everybody's got a part to play, but they need to be going on in God. You can't just support people who are living a worldly, godless lifestyle. There's a discrimination and a dignity. Let's move on to family relationships, just for a few minutes, but I do feel I want to give that a few minutes this morning. Because in this passage as well, there's a bit on family relationships. So there's church relationships, family relationships. Now I want to talk about home life. One eminent historian wrote this. The greatest gift of Christianity to the social fabric is the development of the idea of home. The greatest gift of Christianity to the social fabric is the development of the idea of home. Home is a God thing. It's being attacked today, family is being attacked today, but actually, although the devil hates it, it's a God idea that there is family and care for one another in the home. And throughout these verses, you can see God again and again reinforcing that. I think it's quite interesting to look at, for example, verses 9 and 10 about these older widows who are to be used in the church as ministry team in the church in some way. Look at God calls bringing up children is described as a good deed. I want you to know, if you're a mum or dad, that God would say to bring up children is something he honours. It's a good deed. Now, it's dissed a lot today. But I don't think we should allow that to squeeze us into its mould. The the world's attitude to bringing up children is often very canked. And God sees motherhood, for example, as a vital role. And a woman who has executed motherhood well, 
is to be honoured and used in ministry in the church. That's literally what we get from those verses. Also, she's showing hospitality and washing the saints' feet. What does that mean? Well, it's a little culturally different from us, but it suggests to me just hospitality, hospitable, hospitable and caring for people's needs. Just good homemaker, good, warm, welcoming homemaker. He talks about her being someone who's helped those in trouble and devoted to all sorts of good deeds. I think this tells us about a generous serving spirit. Now, what we take... God is actually saying, if you've got a lady, an older lady, who has brought up her children well, who has had a good attitude and a welcoming home, has been generous and hospitable, and who is a good, godly, serving homemaker, she is honoured of God. And that is something that is a good deed, and she needs to be used in the church. That's bluntly what it's saying. You can read it for yourself. Now, I think that's a different standard to the way sometimes we think today. And I I, I speak to all of us, because we can get into the world. I'm not saying it's wrong to be a career person as as a mother. I'm not saying it's wrong. You make your own personal decisions. But actually, Scripture seems to elevate motherhood quite a lot here. And it actually seems to be saying to give yourself to your family and to bringing up your children and to making your home a place of welcome and hospitality is a high calling in God. It is a high calling. This is God's perspective of the thing. And we need to honour people who do that. And the home is not fabric-centred, it's people-centred. These widows may have been wealthy, some of them. They may not have been, we don't know, but they weren't all poor. And actually the point is not about whether they've got a house and resources, it's about their attitude. Were they people-centred? Were they caring for people, bringing up their children? It's not about being house-proud, it's more about being homely and a homemaker. And they're to be honoured and used. And it's interesting in the young widows, verse 14, he says to them, if they're in danger of uh, wandering about, not using their time very wisely, that they have to get married. And he says to manage their houses or their homes, I beg your pardon, manage their homes in verse 14. Now that apparently is quite a strong phrase in the Greek. It means they really manage their household. They, they rule their household. It suggests authority, initiative, responsibility. This is not the suppression of women. This is about they are to rule their house well. They're to manage their house well. They're to make sure that they have a good home and that they look after their children. It's, it's not about being a, a subservient. It's actually quite an authoritative phrase. And he exhorts the young widows to do that. We need to notice all this stuff because today many of these values are under attack. Homemaking is despised. Marital fidelity is despised and mocked and cheapened. Bringing up children is often considered mundane and secondary to a career. But the Word of God does not have that value system, brothers and sisters. That is not how God sees it. It's not just a cultural thing. He sees it as honourable and vital role to build a healthy home and a good home. It's not the only thing you do, but when you've got an opportunity to do it, do it well and do it to the Lord. It's possible to build a home well. These dear women who were over 60 years old have proved that you can have a good track record as a homemaker and you can be honoured and used to help others. Hallelujah. Let's quickly talk about a few home truths. Genuine Christian behaviour begins with our own family. That's the next thing I want to say. In verses 4 and 8 and verse 16, Paul 
the Holy Spirit, is very straight that we have our first responsibility towards our direct family. And honouring our parents and our grandparents is pleasing to God. And actually, if we don't look after our family and show care and love for them, we are a bad witness. Because in verse 8, Paul says that actually there are many pagans, unbelievers, who are quite good with their family. Of course there are. There are actually non-Christian cultures that are very good with family. You will find them in Asia and Africa. You'll find non-Christian cultures where old people are looked after, where there is a care for the family. Now, the challenge of Scripture is, if an unbeliever can do that, what about us? And we should hear the challenge and take it right on the chin. That actually, if we've got the light of God in us, we've got the Spirit of God in us, we at least ought to be able to match what an unbeliever can do in showing care for their family, for the elderly, for the lonely, and for our own family, even the odd ones as well. We've all got them, but that's how family is. We've got to show care for family. And then verse 16 says that the Christian shouldn't burden the church with a need that they could relieve themselves, which I think is quite an interesting one. I don't know that it's a huge problem, but it does occur occasionally that quite able Christian people expect the church to look after their relatives in a way they could. And we just need to hear the challenge. I've, I've come across it historically a few times. And you think, well, actually, you're a believer, they're your parents or they're your children. We'll do what we can, but in the end, if you're a believer and they're a believer, you're the first line. <laughs> I've, you know, it happens in all sorts of quirky ways. If you're a, a, a husband, you're the first resp- your first responsibility is your wife. She's not, first of all, my responsibility. My first responsibility is Marion. Now, I can be a pastor, but your kids and your wife are, first of all, your responsibility. And, it's, and it's, it's, that's what goes all the way through. Now, I can help you and support you, but that's all I can do. I'm not a husband to your wife. I'm not a father to your children. I'm not a son to your mother and father and your elderly relative. I can help you and support you. I can pray. When they're really in need, I can step in. But the first responsibility is you, if you're a Christian towards it. That is just home truths. That's biblical stuff. And let's finish with home alone. <laughs> I have nice points here. I've rushed through them, really. Never mind. I'm quite proud of this. took me about half an hour to come up with these titles. What, what about singles? Because uh, you could say, well, you talked a lot. I want just to say to you that actually most of this passage is about single people. Now, they were actually uh, designated as widows in that culture. But in actual fact, that is what we're talking about through most of these verses. They were probably the most common form of single adult in the context of the first century culture. And I think there's something quite interesting in this passage to say in this last point. In verse 6, and let's look at it. I'll look at it. In verse 6, you can look at it as well. It's a challenge that some widows live just for their own pleasure. There is a challenge that you can just live for yourself a little more easily when you're on your own. You can, whatever the reason. You can just be focused on your own pleasures and needs. There's a challenge not to be like that that's here. There's another challenge in verse 13. Some of them were being idle, going from house to house. You can get into that a little bit. You think, well, what are you saying? I'm not being hard, I just think you can 
sometimes when you're on your own in different ways, get into a gossipy culture. I mean, everybody can as well, of course, but there can be a vulnerability to a sort of idleness, a sort of self-pleasing, because some of the constraints of having to live with you know, other people and kids' demands and all the rest of it can actually, although you might envy people like that, it actually can be very constraining, but you can sometimes just idle around. But God says, don't do that. Use any freer time for serving God and for pleasing him. However, the church also has a responsibility to bring you into the family and to care for you. And we need to take that challenge. There need to be appropriate ways in which we give people a a sense of being identified with the church and part of it. I, I believe we haven't got all the answers on this yet. I think we need to be able to use people according to their spiritual maturity and gifting, not according to their marital status, which we're in danger of doing. If they're married, they do this, they don't. That happens in our sort of churches. I don't think it's always good. And I like to put it right over as God helps us. Because I think in the early church, they did better. These list people, I mentioned, verse 9, were used in the church, recognised. I think in chapter uh, three, we hear about women deacons. There were, there were different roles that the early church managed to find for people. I don't think we always do as well as we could. We need to make people feel they have a part to play, even though they might not be married or homemaking. Also, we need to have that family sense that we care for people like as though they were our brother or our sister. And we help meet their needs if they have things that they need that nobody else is going to help them with and so on and so forth, all through. But there is a verse that seems to me, I can't resist looking at it, infuriating to many a modern ear, I would think. It's verse 14. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. I don't know if you felt like I did. As I read that, I thought, was that it? It seems a bit simple, doesn't it? If, you're, if you want to, get married. And I bet some of you think, well, chance would be a fine thing. And then I thought, well, what do do I learn from that, Lord? What do I learn from verse 14? And I thought this, and I'll throw it out for your thoughts if you're a single person for whatever reason. It strikes me that the Bible has no super-spirituality about marriage. There is zero super-spirituality about it. You know, it's not about waiting for a Mr. Right or a Mrs. Right or praying and fasting for the right one to arrive from heaven. I mean, it is get married then. You think, oh, thanks, as simple as that, is it? But actually it's the same in 1 Corinthians 7, if you read it, when he says, well, if you have sexual problems and you find it tempting, get married. You think, well, yes. <laughs> Just like that then. And, and you think, well, what, is, what do you learn from that? Well, I think you learn that there is a practicality about it. Heaven knows, I know, that it's not that simple for many of you, but there's a sense in which there is no real idealism about it or super-spirituality. Obviously, it's best you like the person. <laughs> And that they're Christians. So I don't think you just marry anybody, you know, or the first person on the street then. Get married, right. When you do, well, uh, you know. But certainly I think we can absorb from our culture a lot of artificial stuff. A lot of over-romantic, Mr. Right type stuff. Mrs. Right type stuff. They're Mr. Right once you've married them. Or Mrs. Right once you've... You've got to make them Mr. Right by loving them. Both ways. You are married to the right partner. If I'm talking to the marrieds now, because you so often hear, I don't sure, I'm not sure I married the right person. Rubbish. You are married to the right person. It's garbage. It's not biblical. 
that there's, that, that, you know, I missed it. There was a, I've had it said to me last year in some of the crisis we've been handling. You know, th- there was somebody I missed 20 years ago. And this woman who I've produced children with and who I've been with for 15 years, isn't, I shouldn't have married her. That's not biblical, brothers and sisters. That has not got an ounce of reality to it or biblical truth. You are married to the right person now. And never give me that excuse for your sin. Don't try and take some phony, super spiritual high ground and say, I married the wrong person. There's no ground there. You haven't got any. It's not. The Bible doesn't work like that. Get married. We say, well, the right one? And shouldn't I pray and fast for six years? And you might marry the wrong one. The Bible doesn't even think like that. It doesn't think about this earnest, or not earnest, this perpetual nervousness about commitment. Well, oh, you know, it goes on for years. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh. I don't find that in the Bible. I find you get on and get married when you find someone. I find, you know, you find someone you like, you both love the Lord, get married. <laughs> Make sure the opposite sex. Where's all this super spiritual claptrap? It's not there. And, you know, it's just not there. Get married. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Give me a chance, Lord. Well, now, actually, what I do think, I do think you can genuinely do, I honestly believe this, I think you can bring these scriptures to God. You can bring 1 Timothy 5.11. <clears throat> you can bring 1 Corinthians 7.9. And you can say, Lord, if you're counselling me to get married, will you please give me an opportunity? And I mean that could be a faith position. You're saying, you're saying that if I can't handle my singleness and the temptations, that's what you say in 1 Corinthians 7. Or if you're saying in 1 Timothy 5, I can't handle the dilemmas and the loneliness and the temptations to idleness or gossip or whatever it is. Well, you saying, then get married. Then, Lord, you need to give me an answer. But I think that could be a faith prayer, not a sort of, right, but it's a faith prayer. God, I'm going to look for this answer. Do you know what I mean? I think your faith can get hold of these verses. If this is the word of God, then God ought to be able to back up his word, didn't he? And and if, if that's what God's saying, I counsel you to get married, that's what God's saying to people who are struggling for whatever way, whether 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Timothy 5, struggling with the dilemmas and temptations of their singleness, well then we've got to start doing some real prayer work on this, haven't we? Say, God, here's your word. (laughs) I want to fulfil it. And I I think, I don't know, I'll leave it with you. I think you should let your faith be stirred by it. Hallelujah. I've talked for too long and I apologise for those of you who worry about that sort of thing. But we're going to stop now and we're going to have the worship band up. Come on up then, please, John.